Welcome, dear listener, to episode 50 of Booth One. Yes, it's our golden anniversary show and our first episode of the new year, technically, though our last show was published on New Year's Day. And as we mentioned on that show, our beloved Roscoe is on sabbatical for a few weeks. Uh, Rumors that he may have run off with the circus to finally learn how to be a teeterboard artist are greatly exaggerated, but we'll be missing his presence for a short time. Listeners have been understandably curious about his absence, so I'll have a real-time update very shortly in this program. But in his stead, we have engaged a series of guest hosts in the booth to pick up some of my slack. Today, we've asked my old friend and man about town, I'm going to refer to him as Southside Jim Riho, to help me host the show. Hi, Jim. Welcome to Booth One. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, it's an absolute pleasure. Are you an old pro at this? I am not a pro at broadcasting podcasts, but I've been many uh, in many a band and appeared in front of many an unruly judge. <laughs> That's right. Let, let's tell the listeners a little bit about your background. You're from Ohio originally, yeah? Yes. You're, you're an attorney. Technically. All right. Well, you've appeared before judges, and I'm going to say you've appeared on the side of arguing for people as opposed to uh, being um, on the criminal side of the judgment. Generally. (laughs) Now, where did you go to school? Well, I went to John Carroll University in Cleveland area. Yeah. I moved to Chicago. Basically, it ended up permanently to go to Northwestern. This was what, in the late 70s? Um, Yeah, 79. I was in grad school in English. Then I went to law school, which was maybe not the best idea and not well thought out, but I did, and somehow I've uh, stuck with that on a very low level right up to the present day. Now, you mentioned Northwestern, and and that's right here in Evanston, Illinois, very near where our studios are, uh, as as we currently sit in our studios. So this must feel like homecoming in a way. Well, after I got out of Northwestern, I didn't want to come anywhere near Evanston. So it was more than a decade. It had changed a lot since then, and then it's changed a lot since then till now. It's remarkable. For instance, we now have liquor stores. Well, sure. Because it was dry. I can tell you that when I was there, the only place you could get a a beer was in the incredibly dilapidated upstairs of the Orrington Hotel. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. There was one other place, but I think you had to get food, too, so that ruled me out anyway. But no, it was incredibly dilapidated, and and you could actually get a drink, and you could play some video games. No one ever went there, so there was a bunch of my friends and I, and we'd go out there. They would let us put our own records in the jukebox. Wow. It was glorious. Um, we, we, loved, we loved us some Warrington Hotel. Yeah, I bet you did. So you, you kind of abandoned uh, Evanston and the north side of Chicago. Evanston is just the first northern suburb of uh, Chicago. I, I grew up... On the south side. In fact, when we when we were first living after I was born, somewhere around 46th and Spalding, which was the old Polish neighborhood just off of Archer there. Yes. You decided to become a South Sider. You, you've embraced the South Side. Now, we haven't talked about the South Side very much on this show, but it's a fascinating part of Chicago, where the old stockyards were, where the old Polish neighborhoods were. You live on the south side now currently, right? And you've been there for years. I sure do. I lived in Rogers Park for 21 years and loved, loved, loved it. Just near here, just the first neighborhood inside the Chicago city line. Right. And then there was one very, very brief moment in my life where I had a little money, and I had another friend who was undergoing a similar anomaly, and <laughs> we, I had an idea, and it was like, I'll call her N. N, why don't we think about buying a place, and you know, you live in one unit, and I'll live in the other. Yeah. We were friends. We were not boyfriend, girlfriend, or anything like that, but good friends. And she said, sure. And she said, you know, I've been a little, doing a little catering on the side, and uh, would you think about moving to the south side? And I thought about it, I said, you mean like Belmont and something? <laughs> she said, no, Jim, 
Again, still on the north side, about about yeah, uh, yeah. 30, Belmont was thirty eight hundred north. That was kind of a track, you know. She said no, and I went to the real south side, near what then was called Comiskey Park, and visited where the White Sox uh, played exactly. for years. Now called Failed Bank Field or something like that. Yeah, something about <laughs> cheap loan field something or something. About, right. Or a bankrupt, bankrupt, right. bankrupt help field. Yeah, nothing inspirational. No, no. But you, near where the White Sox play, 35th and Shields. Right. So I visited there, and I had only been to the South Side twice in all those years, both to go to White Sox games. The first time I went, we parked our car in the street. The second time I took the L down there, and it was all good until on the way back, a guy with a scythe, you know, like reaping grain, got on the L car and started brandishing you, it around. You, you mean like, oh, yeah. but a handheld one. That, yeah. You know, a sickle. I wouldn't, yes, like a, a sickle. A sickle. Yes, exactly. And this was years ago, and he started cutting down all the little fire extinguishers on the cars <laughs> and putting them in a huge canvas sack. Oh, God. And uh, there was a moment there I felt like saying... Sir, that is wrong. But then I thought, well, what if your head gets what, what, Your wiser instinct yeah. prevailed. I yeah. thought I still had something to offer the world at that point. So you moved down to the south side. Yeah. You bought this house, which you still live in. I call you South Side Jim because you're one of my few friends who really is ensconced in the South Side and really loves living there. What sort of entertainment do you have down there? Because it, it, it's neighborhoody. And the you know bars and restaurants can be few and far between. Do you have a favorite bar? Do you have some favorite restaurants you go to? Those bars are not as few and far between as you might think. Taverns. Yeah, they're still around. The dailies have been on a program to reduce the number of little corner bars in Chicago. You're talking about the Daly family, yes. who were yes. longtime uh, mayors of the city of Chicago. Not currently, but uh, the, the last Daly is still still alive. So there are bars down there, but where I live is called Brighton Park, or as real estate agents would call it, really far west Bridgeport. Like, <laughs> way <laughs> deluxe far Bridgeport. I see, I see. Where I live, it's more of a residential area. You know of the one bar I was going to, the FBI, the so-called Fountain Blue Inn. The Fountain Blue right, Inn, I'm, yes. I'm, you've told me about the Fountain Blue, spelled F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N dash B-L-U-E, I think is what you've Not told even me. a dash. Not even. <laughs> fountain the Fountain might not, Blue. Fountain might be spelled a little differently, too. Ah, uh, yeah. Not, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing French about it in any way. No, and now there's really nothing, anything about it because an SUV got hit and made a left turn right into the front of the building and hit the bar and actually knocked it to the other end of the building. I, you, I take it you were so, not inside at the time. No, although if I had been, I would have been squished because I always sit... Because you, you like to sit in the front stool, don't you, no, on the corner? As close to the door as possible. There you always. go. There you go. Rule number one. South side rule number one. Sit close to the door. Yeah, so the FBI, as we call it, is, is out of commission for Lord knows how long. The fountain blew in. Right. <laughs> Renowned found blue in. Yeah. When you go out, uh, are there still restaurants of desire down there? I know there's still a Polish neighborhood along Archer Avenue. There are some great places. The Polish neighborhood, there's still a few Polish grocery stores open down there. If you like uh, Euro Trash Disco, they've got a, a disco down there still. Yeah, excellent. But I live around 40th and Western, 4000 South. Mm -hmm. But you learn when you go down there that there's places that are even further south than that. 50, 60, 100, 200 South. So I work those areas too. And one place I would certainly recommend is on Pulaski. I think it's in the 70s. Vito and Nick's Pizza, mm -hmm. which actually gets mentioned for being one of the best pizza places in Chicago. One of the best pizza places. Is it deep dish? Or is it it's a thin crust? Totally thin crust. Oh, my and favorite. My favorite. You're there because of the tradition of it, but yeah. it's, it's great. But also, if you go directly east from where I live, then you're passing through Pilsen and then into Bridgeport. Mm -hmm. 
Now, those are two wonderful, wonderful, wonderful areas where there's incredible, super great food. Yeah, Pilsen is a great ethnic neighborhood. Lots of great food in Pilsen, uh, Mexican food, Dominican food. It's just, just fantastic down there. You know, I've been on the south side now for 15 years. The transformation of Bridgeport has been remarkable and remarkably positive. Yeah. This is an area that was known for being unsafe for a long time. Now it is one of the most diverse areas of the city. But mm. that area, in the 15 years I've been down there, has changed dramatically. There's art galleries. There's really cool restaurants. Uh, there's one that opened up. I think it's called like Kimski. It's Korean-Polish cuisine. <laughs> Fabulous. No, and I think it's called Kimski. Who would have who thought to marry those two? I wish I had that idea. Well, it's, it's available to the public now. <laughs> Fantastic. What, what, what do you do for your entertainment down there? Are there, are there still movie theaters? Uh, are there any live theaters that you can go to? Or do you have to jump into the, the city to go see things? Well, one thing that I would mention that everyone who's in the area or gets a chance to go to is Thalia Hall. Thalia Hall is no, located right in the heart of Bridgeport. It started out, I think, in the 1880s as a replica of a European opera house, mm. just a smaller version. This was in the era when the, the Europeans were dominant, the Bohemians. So it has a long history, and it had fallen into total disrepair for a long, long time. Fires, it had had ceiling damage. Water floods, damage. Sure. Terrible. But then a few years ago, I think the same people that run the Empty Bottle took over Thalia. Also a, a popular club here Legendary in Legendary rock club. Yeah. They have done an unbelievable job of restoring it and bringing incredible acts of all kinds in there. I saw Ginger Baker play there, the original drummer of Cream. Mel. The sound, the acoustics, which is important to me, is incredible. The appearance is unbelievable. They have the balconies open where you can rent part, part of a balcony, the balcony seating. Neat. So Thalia Hall, although there are issues about the gentrification of that area, Thalia Hall is a glorious, beautiful theater. Yeah, they've done a superb job with that place, and, it, and it's become one of the premier performance venues in Chicago. Uh, and, and boy, the South Side desperately needed something like that after so many really classic theaters, movie houses, and, and things like that closed over the years. But uh, Thalia Hall uh, is definitely thumbs up. I wanted to uh, give a little bit of a, a review of what happened on Broadway recently. We talked about this a few weeks ago during the Thanksgiving week when most shows add another performance, so they do nine instead of eight uh, because of the tourist crowd. Well, of course, between Christmas and New Year's, um, Broadway shows always add a performance here or there. Um, and, of course, their grosses always go sky high. Well, uh, the 33 plays and musicals running um, during the Christmas New Year's week, which is a week and a half ago, they brought in a whopping, get this, Jim, $49.7 million in gross ticket sales, making it the highest grossing week in Broadway history. Uh, it, it was also the best attended week on record. With how, how many people do you think attended these 33 Broadway shows? Just roughly. In that week. In a week, yeah. Say, in, say averaging, you know, nine shows a, a, a week in those, in those Broadway houses. I'll just make a rough guess... 150,000 people. 359,495 people <laughs> seeing Broadway shows during that week. A an astounding 24 shows, 24 of the 33 shows grossed more than $1 million. And that's sort of like the benchmark of if you gross a million dollars, you're doing pretty darn well. Even if you're a big musical with a lot of uh, running costs, weekly running costs, even if your running costs are six or seven hundred thousand dollars, that's still a pretty hefty, profitable week. This is according to figures released by the uh, Broadway League. Three shows, three shows topped the three million dollar mark. Three of them. Yeah. Any ideas what those three were, Jim? 
Well, one, Is Hamilton one, still there somewhere? <laughs> One's obvious, yes, Hamilton. Three versions of Hamilton. No, no, very close. Hamilton, Wicked, which is still playing, Wicked. of course, and The Lion King. Something else that grossed tremendously well that week was The Phantom of the Opera. Also been playing for 30-some-odd years. How, uh, how's Showboat doing? The, <laughs> They were right behind Tobacco Road. (laughs) The longest-running Broadway show in history, The Phantom of the Opera, and a reliable barometer for tourist traffic had its best week, too, taking in $1.9 million. This is after 30-some-odd years of running on Broadway. Wow. Crazy. Uh, This is a little shout-out to Roscoe. Hey, Roscoe, Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812 had a banner week, as did A Bronx Tale, and Dear Evan Hansen, a new uh, musical on Broadway, which is uh, getting tremendous, tremendous reviews. What's your favorite Broadway show? I I don't know you very much as a theater-goer, but I know that you like to go and be entertained by music, by jazz, uh, well, which is music. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know much about jazz, but I know that much. Do you have a favorite Broadway musical? Sure. Can you, can as you, an tell, can you tell us what it is? As an undergraduate, I thought, well, I'm an English major, so we got to do something that'll provide for my livelihood the rest of my life. So my minor was History of American Musical Theater. You're, you're kidding. No. At Northwestern? No. That, oh, this was that back was in Ohio. That was as an undergraduate, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you could minor in that. Well, it was, they let that's, you do what you wanted there. It was all right. That's but, fantastic. So I would say I love the classic American musicals. Your Oklahomas, your South Pacifics, your uh, Carousel, uh, even your Little Abner. Wow. I, I played in the orchestra for Little Abner in South Pacific. What did you play? Guitar, uh, keyboards? Alto sax. Alto sax. Yeah. Wouldn't have guessed that, but go on. I'm not saying I was good at it, but that is my era. These, those immortal songs, the immortal old songs. I'm not as up by far on, on current musicals. But uh, I love, like, Carousel. I was just listening to the original cast soundtrack the other night. Well, we had, a, we had a whole episode about Carousel a couple of years ago. You did. <laughs> we did, well, because it was playing at the, uh, the Lyric Opera here. They did a beautiful, beautiful production, and uh, I think Ross went to see it three times or something, and we, we, just, we just couldn't stop talking about it. Well, there you go. Then, then That's Ross a wonderful, and I have wonderful something play. in common. You, you do absolutely have something in common. What's the best show you've ever seen live? Seen live? Yeah, yeah. Something that memorably hits you as, wow, if I could just watch that show over and over again. I did see, I can't even remember whether it was in Cleveland or here, a production of West Side Story, which I think is a splendid work of art, uh, and the, yeah. the movie as well. If only those kids were only having chains in their fists today, we'd have a better world, right? <laughs> Maybe so. It was yeah. certainly well ahead of its time and, and, and continues to be relevant. The only thing that I would say is I'm always looking for a great song. I'm probably more about music than theater itself. I don't know that I've heard the great songs in recent productions. Carousel. You can think of four indelible songs right off the top of your oh, head. Oh, without for that. question. You've probably seen Hamilton. I mean, twice. Do, do they have some indelible songs that will live through history, do you think? Yes. I would say half a dozen. Really? Yeah. But it's a, it's a terrific show. I, I totally recommend it. I know you have to kind of save your pennies in order to do that in Chicago. But one thing I will mention the gentleman who is currently playing Aaron Burr here in Chicago. Uh, This gentleman's name is Joshua Henry. He's magnificent, just terrific. Well, it's been announced that he's leaving the show. Now, I know the show just opened in September. (laughs) 
Why is he leaving the show? Well, he has been pegged to star as Aaron Burr in the national touring production, uh, which is going to begin its uh, tour March 10th in San Francisco. Uh, Many, many cities have already been announced, but it's going to sit down in places for a long time. Who's going to take his place? Well, it hasn't been mentioned yet, but the actor and television host Wayne Brady has been spotted around downtown Chicago. Brady is the host currently of the new Let's Make a Deal show on television. Uh, He's also a regular panelist on this Whose Line Is It Anyway? The improv comedy show, which you've probably seen, Jim. And he has Broadway credits, beginning with an appearance as Billy Flynn in Chicago. Well... You know, my grandmother has appeared as Billy Flynn in Chicago. <laughs> that's it's not really a big claim to fame because they've pretty much cast everybody in that part at one point or another. It was also uh, featured in a starring role in, in Kinky Boots, but this is all speculation about uh, Wayne Brady, but not speculation about Joshua Henry leaving the show. Had another theatrical experience uh, this week around Chicago. You know, we go to a lot of things. Um, We get invited to see press openings and whatnot. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to drag you along, Jim. Just let me know in time to get some clothes. <laughs> Theater is very, very casual in Chicago these days. Well, we went to writer more, more casual than I am. Uh, n- no, n- about as casual as you usually are. You would you would fit in with the crowd absolutely perfectly. We went to okay. Writers Theater, one of our favorite theaters here in Chicago, a theater that was uh, pegged by the uh, Wall Street Journal as the number one theater in America this year. They are on the cutting edge of of doing great theater. Now, they revived a play that was first presented, oh gosh, maybe some 20 years ago or something, called East Texas Hot Links. Takes place, of course, in East Texas in this bar during, well, sort of essentially during the tail end of the Jim Crow era. It is an African-American-based piece uh, with African-American actors in all of the parts. And I will say that you will not see better acting anywhere in Chicago than this play. In fact, probably as good of acting as you could possibly see maybe anywhere in the country at this point. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful play. I I had just a tiny issue with the very ending of the play. (laughs) Some people loved it. I was a little disturbed by the very, very ending, but it's, it's certainly powerful, and it certainly makes a bold and troubling statement about the nature of race in America. I'm going to uh, just identify a couple of people. Tyla Abercrombie was wonderful. She plays the bar owner. A friend of uh, ours named Alfred Wilson plays one of the older characters named Columbus Fry. They were absolutely phenomenally good. And uh, this is in a very small space, no intermission, It's absolutely intense. You're right on top of the action. I I couldn't recommend it more highly. Now, this play is running through, only running through January 22nd, though I have a feeling they may have extended for a week. Uh, You probably have until the end of the month to see this. Where's the theater located? Well, it's in Glencoe. And uh, it started in the back of a bookstore in a room about the size of the room that we're sitting in right now, about the size of our little studio. They could put about 30 to 40 chairs in there. And the stage was maybe the size of this dining room table. And they did plays in there for years and years and years and established themselves as one of the fantastic off-loop theaters. And off when I say off-loop, I mean really off-loop. Their last show in the bookstore was last year, and they now have a smaller black box space, not smaller than the bookstore, but a smaller theater. And that's where East Texas Hot Links is. It's, it's a wonderful piece, and as I said, you won't see better acting anywhere. So if you appreciate that kind of thing, uh, listeners and uh, Jim, you might want to make an effort to get down there. Do you have a favorite play? Well, I've been to the Court Theater at the University of Chicago a few times. Sure, on the south side. Right, which is, uh, that whole area is wonderful, and and that's a, a great theater. It was an Ibsen, what's the biggest Ibsen play? Well, Hedda Gabler. Yes, 
this was some time ago, but it was it was excellent. Uh, Tennessee Williams, yeah, one of the most brilliant, obviously. Yeah, streetcar. Yes, and, I mean, uh, so summer and smoke. Gosh. Eugene O'Neill. Eugene O'Neill. All right. I yeah. Long long, long day's, day's journey, journey into night. Yeah. Um, Desire under the elms. Strange yes. interlude. Long day's journey into night. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible play. Yeah. Kind of like our country right now. Very much so. Well said. It's it's amazing how you can look back at a play that's sixty or seventy years old and then find its relevance again. Well, I think that's the sign of, well, that's the, that's the mark of true artists. Uh, it transcends time and eras and ages and uh, trends. You know, I'm wondering whether under the current political climate, somebody like Kurt Weil might have a, a great career or some, some revivals here. Some of that kind of political theater. Sure. Political playwriting. I think there's a need for it. Again, I'm not a theater expert, but Mother Courage springs to mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, the world might be ripe for a, a great new revival of that. Uh, it's Three it, Penny Opera. Three Penny Opera. <laughs> we were talking about that on the last show uh, with Ro- Roscoe. He played a, a small part in a production of Three Penny Opera, and he was remarking about how he forgot his lyrics once and sang the same verse twice, much to the amazement of the uh, other cast members. Speaking of Roscoe, I said early on that I would give uh, an update. Well, for those of you who have written in uh, or called and and were concerned about his um, absence, his sabbatical, Roscoe had a small medical procedure to relieve some pressure on uh, some nerves in the back of his neck. And I take full responsibility for that because Roscoe has said many times that I'm working his last nerve. And I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm going to assume that these were the nerves that were being worked. Well, he had to have those relieved uh, through surgery on his neck. He, he is recovering. He is still in hospital, as they say in Britain. He's in hospital. He's got a big neck brace on, but he's in great spirits. He's sitting up. He's talking. He's going to be moved to a rehab facility very, very soon so that he can begin getting himself back in shape. He's got to be very careful the way he moves his neck, at least for the near future. That's my Roscoe update. He's doing swell, and he's uh, going to be back with us uh, in the booth uh, in no time uh, before anybody knows it. Something I wanted to mention that came across my desk the other day, residents of the uh, Japanese city of Osaka, this is uh, apropos of nothing, Jim, Uh, they no longer have to hold their noses when the sewage trucks roll by, because the vehicles now smell of chocolate. The trucks suck up waste from septic tanks around the city uh, and are famed for their stench. As we know, we have septic trucks here in Chicago, as most metropolitan areas do. So sanitation companies recently decided to infuse the vehicle's lubricating oil with a powerful chocolate-smelling deodorizer. It's sort of like living near the Bomer chocolate factory over there near the, near the train station. Have you ever walked by there and smelled that chocolate? Yes. When the wind is blowing just right... You could swear you're actually sitting inside a box of chocolates. Yeah. Most Osakans are happy, uh, although some complained about the choice of scent. Uh, why did they have to use the smell of something brown, one of the uh, Osakans asked. Um, what's that? Dot org, where you start the petitions? Yeah. Change.org, man. Change.org. You're absolutely right. You mentioned early on... Carousel, you were talking about one of your favorite musicals. Uh, I, I, I wanted to mention that uh, my producer and I uh, watched the Kennedy Center Honors last weekend, I guess. Uh, this, of course, is the annual event where they uh, present uh, a Kennedy Center honor to a, a significant American. Many times it's the entertainment field. Sometimes it's music or literature or it could be really science, anything. And then they do this sort of mini tribute show. It's not really a roast. It's really kind of a tribute portion of the show to to that person. Well, this particular Kennedy Center Honors had uh, among its uh, honorees the Eagles, Al Pacino, James Taylor, and Mavis Staples. Very heavy on the music side. 
And uh, one of the tributes to Mavis Staples was done by well, one of my all-time favorite singers and entertainers, um, Bonnie Raitt. And it started me thinking about John Raitt. We, we've talked about John Raitt on the show before. Y- you've had some recent encounter with uh, John Raitt knowledge, did you not, Jim? I remember it very well because it's so infrequently that I really encounter knowledge. Yeah. So I'm very clear in my mind. You're always imparting it, though. I don't know how you, how you well, manage to do that. it doesn't mean you have any knowledge when you're always trying to impart it. There you go. you know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But yes, because I had happened to have been thinking a little bit about Bonnie Raitt, and then it occurred to me, yeah, John Raitt. So I, I actually made it a point to listen to some of his recordings and learn more about him, and, and quite a tale it is. He's certainly in the Hall of Fame of the original great American musical theater Right, the original Billy Bigelow in 1945 and, in Carousel. And to me, it doesn't get any better than that. And he... That's a hell of a role to sing, too. Wow. Oh, yeah. I re- listened to a little interview with him, and he was talking about that. Nearly impossible. It's about eight minutes. The soliloquy uh, yes, that you're soliloquy. talking about. Yeah, yes. that's the oh, name of the goodness. piece. Yeah. And he had so much trouble doing that. It was. It took a lot of technique. Yeah, you're, you're all by yourself on stage, and there is no one that's going to come rescue you. There's n- there's no. nothing to be done. No one out there. It's it's your it's your eight minutes of do or die, sink or swim, and you've got to tell the story of this about to be born child and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to be raising it. And then by the end of the journey, he's decided that he's got to do something because he's got to become a good father and he's got to provide for the little boy or the little girl, and it's, it's uh, yes, it's a stunning, stunning um, tour de force piece, one of the great uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein pieces. And, you know, John Raid had a great life. He performed in Broadway. He had the Pajama Game years later, which yeah, was Also a huge original hit. in the Pajama Game. And he was in the movie. He had a One of his only movie. films, I, I think it may be his only film role with Doris Day. Yeah, he was on TV a lot in those early days. But hey not there, you with the stars in, in your, your eyes. <laughs> and he had a wonderful relationship with Bonnie Raitt. And the thing That's I- always been refreshing to me, you know, because there's lots of relationships that go sour in the show business world, especially when the parent is a big star. One of the great uh, conflict relationships, we've just lost them, Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, though they managed to reconcile themselves later yes. in life. Thank but goodness. It was, it was rocky for many, many, many years. But uh, Bonnie and John Raitt had a wonderful, loving relationship their entire lives. They did, and... Among the many things I'm jealous of his life for, aside from being tall, is that (laughs) he remained really intact in appearance and vocal ability right up pretty much to the end of his life. He died when he was 88. But there is um, a video of he and Bonnie appearing together. I think it's with the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, He was 85, I think, at that time. Or thereabouts. And he comes out, he's still looking great, and he sings that song, and God, it's still sent, shivers up my spine. And then she comes out and talks about him, and oh, it's, it's really wonderful. One of our favorite things to watch, Roscoe and I, are these old segments from the Ed Sullivan Show. And one of them is John Raitt and three other cast members from wow. the revival and Richard Rogers conducting an orchestra <laughs> right next to them. We love to watch that, and they sing the, the theme song, of course. They sing Oklahoma. He's, he's got such a great stage presence. You know, handsome, rugged, the very epitome... Tall. tall as you said, the very epitome of that leading uh, man type that is rare. He was certainly one of a kind. I'm glad that you've, uh, you've learned a little bit about John and um, that you appreciate him as much as we do on the show here. He's a, a great favorite of ours on Booth One. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I want to talk about one other theater experience uh, we had this week. 
uh, we went to the Steppenwolf Theater just uh, yesterday, and we saw a play called The Christians. Are you familiar with this play, uh, Jim? I've heard of it. Uh, this is an up-and-coming young playwright, and from what I've gathered in some reviews that I read, it takes a very fair look at, at the issues facing some Christians. Yeah, it's written by Lucas Nath. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's spelled H-N-A-T-H, and I think it's Nath. And it's, it's an 80-minute show, no intermission. As you walk in and you're sitting in the theater, the set is done so that you feel like you're sitting in a megachurch. And there's this big glowing cross uh, uh, right upstage center, and there's uh, overhead panels that make it feel like you're in this giant, giant modern space. Uh, as you come in before the show starts for the first 15 minutes before curtain time, there's a revival, I wouldn't call it a meeting, but there's a revival musical escapade going on with singers and a band, and they're revving up the crowd by playing great, great gospel tunes about Jesus and salvation, and I feel the fire, and uh, you know, I'm burning with passion, and they really rile up the crowd, and they get them to you know, wave their hands and to clap along. It's really quite something. The basis of this play is uh, focused on the pastor, Pastor Paul. It opens, as I said, with this great revival music and uh, energy, and it quickly segues into his sermon for the day. Something happens in terms of what our expectations of a megachurch and their belief system and their whole, well, their whole basis for being. He shatters that in one sermon, and I'll, I'll tell you what it is. He shatters their whole belief system by saying, if we believe that God is 100% benevolent, always, then even non-believers get to go to heaven. Whoa. I including, and later on he admits this to someone, including, yes, Hitler. There's a place in heaven for Hitler. Now, it might not be at God's right hand, but, and it's not even a, it's not even a loss of faith. It's, it's, he claims that it's an insight from, from God. God is telling him that I am all benevolent, and just because you're a believer doesn't mean that a non-believer is going to hell. Essentially what he says is there is no hell. Hell is what we now live in, where uh, bad things happen, people do bad things to each other, there are bombings, and, and people kill each other and steal from each other, and there's sin, and we live in the world of sin. We live in the world of, quote-unquote, hell. So after this, the only next thing that there is is heaven. And he preaches this to his congregation, and of course... Hilarity ensues. <laughs> Chaos ensues, uh, in fact, and um, the, the congregation begins to break apart in a number of ways. I, I was fascinated by the entire play, and I think it brings to light some very, very interesting questions about faith and truth and the goodness of man, the inherent goodness of man and the belief in that. The cast includes Robert Bruhler, uh, Shannon Cochran, Glenn Davis, Jacqueline Williams, and in the role of Pastor Paul, is a wonderful actor. I, I saw him after the show, and I said, you, you are the real deal. Tom Irwin, he's, he's a longtime uh, Steppenwolf uh, actor. He lives in Los Angeles now, so we don't get to see him quite as often as I would like to, but he's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, I particularly want to repoint out Glenn Davis, who plays his assistant pastor, or associate pastor, I guess it's called, who has the first schism with Pastor Paul over this new system of belief. 
and he eventually breaks off and starts his own little church at the YMCA down the street, and lots of people come to follow him because he's still preaching the word that they know of. He has a wonderful speech uh, towards the end of the play about um, his mother dying in the hospital and that she had never been a believer. She had never accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior, I guess. I'm paraphrasing here, of course. And so he tries to save her at the end in her hospital bed. It says, believe, just say you believe, just, just say you believe. And she said, sweetheart, I can't lie. I cannot tell a lie. And he's thinking, if she doesn't, she's going to hell and I'll be going to heaven because I'm a believer. And then when I'm gone, all I'll be able to do is look down at her suffering in hell from my place in heaven. And so my place in heaven will become kind of like a hell. Well, my my head was spinning. I thought, wow, now I don't know where this is going. Heaven can be a hell in a way. Hell doesn't exist, and we're living in hell, and heaven is the only other thing. What, what, was, what was your upbringing when you were young? I, I was brought up uh, in the Catholic Church. So was I, and uh, I've had my ups and downs with the Catholic Church. I would say that I consider myself an agnostic. I don't know what happens when you die. I barely know what happens when I live. I went through a period, and maybe you did too, of like utter rebellion against the Catholic Church. You know, I would be in the high school cafeteria pointing out, like, hey, God, come on, take me out if you're so tough, you know? And wow. Yeah, I was. Well, you were a rebellious kind of guy. You, uh, have, you have a bit of a rebellious streak in you. Yeah, I was, I was very angry about Catholicism. However, as time went by, I think I have a lot more measured thoughts about that. And really all I ask is be good to people, don't hurt anybody, believe whatever you want. That, it's, it really comes down to that simply for me. And I have to say, although he doesn't need a, a pitch from me, the current Pope is awesome. I love him. <laughs> he loves animals. He's my guy. Shout out to the Pope. Shout out to the That's Pope, the man. That's the first time ever on Booth One that we've shouted out to the Pope. Let's see if we can't get him to subscribe to the show and become a regular listener. You know, send him the tape and maybe he'll come on. I could send him the tape of Sister Helen. That might actually uh, prompt yeah. him to listen to other shows. Yeah, he might show up. He's a great person. I really admire him. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect him to transform the Catholic Church of the world, but I know his heart's in the right place, and that means yeah. a lot to me. What do you think of so this? I'm all good with that. Yeah, what do you think of this concept of no hell? I think that's a brilliant concept to base the play on. Because what happens when you make that sermon is you're pulling the rug right out from all under all the righteous religious people who the whole reason they're religious is because I'm going to be better than you and then I get a bigger reward at the end. Really what the sermon is about is that even if you're not good, you still end up in a pretty good place. And that is going to seem very wrong to a lot of Christians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's a, a marvelous turn to have in that play. Very ingenious. Yeah. Because that argument can legitimately be brought up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, that's very good. And it, it's kind of like people hate athletes because they make so much money because they feel they're being unjustly rewarded. And even though it would cost you nothing if some bad person went to heaven as long as you did, a lot of these people would still be resentful of that because, no, that bad person has to go to hell. That's right. not fair. Right. It's not fair. Yes. yes it's not fair. Yes. And, and that's something that they address in this play where they're yes. talking about, I feel cheated. I, I feel like it's not fair. One woman in the congregation has a long section of a, a monologue and a dialogue uh, with uh, Pastor Paul. And th this actually kind of threw a little wrench in the works for me. It, it, it seemed slightly manipulative in terms of the plot. This sermon takes place on the particular Sunday where they also announced that they have erased all the debt from having built this giant mega church. They're finally out of debt, and then he goes ahead and launches into this. And this congregation woman uh, quite rightly says, why did you choose the day, you, the day we get out of debt to tell us about this um, new 
direction that you think uh, our faith should go in. W- were you planning this? Was it planned from the beginning? <laughs> it got a little harried for me. I'm like, well, sort of, and they never really answer it. Um, you know, as, as good plays are wont to do, they don't provide you with easy answers. They provide you with tough questions. I thought this play could have been another 30 to 40 minutes long. I think it deserved a second act. We don't really quite know what the future is going to be for especially Pastor Paul. I wanted to know not because I felt cheated, (laughs) but because I was interested in furthering the conversation about where this idea was going to take us. Um, I, I, I wasn't... I'm not saying it should be 40 minutes longer so that I can get some answers. I think it should be 40 minutes longer so that we can continue the argument and continue the conversation on stage. But it's quite, it's quite the piece, quite disturbing to some people, I can imagine. Well, you were, sounds like you were really engaged with the play, and that means it's a successful play. I mean, when you're thinking about it later on and when you would like more, I mean, it, it's always good when you want more, I think. Except, you know, certain foods and things like that. Well, certain. That's also, that's also good as well. But also, um, I'm heartened myself by your description of the play because maybe I'm in a better position myself than I thought. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Jim. I, I, you're, you're a delightful and insightful guest uh, host, and I hope you've had a good time. We usually end our episodes with our Kiss of Death segment. And you know what? Today's going to be no different. This is a good segue. This leads us right into our Kiss of Death uh, featured person. Have you ever heard of Frances Ann Carr? C-A-R-R. No. She arrived at the Sabbath Day Lake Shaker Village in New Gloucester, Maine in 1937 as a 10-year-old, and she brought a measure of mischief to the, as you can imagine, very regimented uh, life there. She drew other girls into many tiny rebellions like snatching a pail of maple sugar candy from a workshop. Now, you grew up in rural, uh, as you said, uh, rural Ohio. Did you have any uh, Shaker and and Amish uh, communities um, near where you were growing up? You know what? We were not far from the Amish. And we would frequently jump in the car and go for a little ride through the Amish country. Um, Amish country, always, and, always quite beautiful. And also, not far from Chicago, there's Mennonite territory right in very northerly Indiana, where yeah. that's very similar. Yeah, very similar. Uh, by the time Sister Frances Ann Carr passed away uh, this past week at the tender age of 89. She'd become a pillar of the uh, Shaker faith and was one of only three members in the lone active village of the Christian religion whose members have lived communally in the United States since the late 1700s. I'm going to tell you why she's only one of three uh, Shakers still living there. Sister Frances's death at the village leaves only two surviving Shakers, a brother Arnold Had, who's age 60, and a sister Helen June Carpenter at, at 78. The Shakers uh, were a separatist religious group, and they practice celibacy. They arrived in America in, in the uh, 1770s, around 1774, and they established their first religious community in upstate New York in 1776. So, you know, picture the American Revolution, and uh, they're coming over and establishing themselves. And by the middle of the 19th century, the group had between four and 5,000 members in villages that dotted the Northeast, and they even extended into parts of the Midwest. The villages drew Americans in search of spiritual enlightenment and offered a home to children or families who had nowhere else to go. Now, this is how they continued to populate their villages. Because they had vows of celibacy, they would have needy and abandoned children and their families come live at these villages, and then they would sustain themselves, and the children would grow up to take care of other children, and they would grow up to take care of other children, and they'd all become aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews of each other. They were very hardworking and an innovative group that used technology. Today they use cars and uh, have put some of their teachings online. And, of course, 
They became known for their simple furniture, very simple lines, very beautiful construction, lovely, lovely wood, lovely finishes. The Shakers' new recruits declined as American life became less agrarian and religious, and as the rise of social services, this is very interesting, uh, the rise of social services gave poor children other options, and of course, members themselves could not reproduce. The, The Sabbath Day Lake Village is what it was called. It's on a picturesque hillside in central Maine. It still endures. Sister Frances, who sometimes could be seen strolling the grounds in a deep purple traditional dress or singing simple gifts at the Sunday meeting, was a driving force behind the revival of the village's commercial herb garden, for instance, and their livestock farm and the educational outreach that has drawn thousands of visitors. Uh, Have you ever visited a, a Shaker village yourself, Jim? No, although... There is an area near Cleveland called Shaker Heights. I'm yeah. wondering whether that that was influenced by them. She was born Evangeline Annie and was born to a poor family in Lewiston, Maine uh, in March of 1927 and sent by her ailing mother to live at the Sabbath Day Lake Village following some of her older siblings there where she took the name Frances Ann. And although her siblings left the village, she decided at 16 to sign the Shaker Covenant and commit herself to the group. Sister Frances, like uh, other Shakers, they always hoped new members would join the community, and they always welcomed visitors. Uh, At one Sunday meeting two summers ago, she rose to her feet and beamed as she looked at between one and two dozen visitors. That doesn't (laughs) seem like a lot, but given the the, the shrinking uh, size of the population there, uh, I bet she was absolutely thrilled uh, to, to see that many people. It is so gratifying to look around this room and see it filled with so many people, she said. You will always, always always find a place of love here. Uh, Sister Frances and uh, one of the last three Shakers in the Sabbath Day Lake Shaker Village. You know, I don't think they'll be forgotten, and someone can fact-check me on this, but they did a lot of very simple and beautiful hymns, the Shakers, musically. And I believe that some of those are incorporated into, into Aaron Copeland's well, incredible sim- work, sim- Appalachian Spring. Simple Gifts is yes. definitely so one of the main they, themes of that their piece. Works, their works will live on, if not for any other reason than their music. Right. And, and their furniture. <laughs> and, their, and their furniture. Right. Beautiful ladder back chairs. I mean, there's a shaker style that will never really disappear. Well, as I mentioned at the top, James, uh, this is our 50th episode. Uh, It is our uh, golden uh, anniversary episode. And uh, I thought we might have a little toast in uh, celebration of that and also in in celebration of Roscoe's speedy recovery and return. Would you join me in a glass? Of course. It would have to be a really big glass. Cheers, Jim. Cheers. Go Roscoe. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com. As always, we'd love to hear your questions, feedback, comments, and great wishes for a speedy recovery to Roscoe. Uh, For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski, and I'm here with my good friend... Southside Jim. Southside Jim Riho saying, uh, keep listening, and so long until next time. Cheers. Thank you very much.